Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 94 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, we've seen a large number of new cases argued, and so the problem we had a week or so ago is, is seems to be at least temporarily uh, addressed, although we're... And we haven't even touched all the Supreme Court, Illinois, or the United States Supreme Court arguments. We haven't even touched those. We haven't, and uh, they're done with their oral, oral arguments for this year, but uh, uh, we'll start to maybe have some slowdown, but... In any event, Pat and I taped two special episodes this past week, one with John Fitzgerald and one with David Siegel. We have three cases today. The first from the Illinois Appellate Court, 5th District, uh, in the case of Highland Management Group, LLC versus the Pillar Corp, a case of first impression on where an LLC resides for venue. Very interesting issues in that case. The second case is an interesting question in lawyer engagements and retainers about authority to settle, Lucanti versus Milos from the Illinois First District. And we'll get into uh, kind of a, I guess a hot bench would be one way to characterize it. Um, our third case is actually two cases involving retaliatory discharge cases, one from the Seventh Circuit, Jennifer Lam Quang Vin. I think that's how you pronounce it, but uh, I think everybody at the uh, oral argument was having trouble, versus Springs Window Fashions, LLC and one from the 1st District, Harvey versus CPA. With that, let's turn to our first case today. In a matter of first impression in Illinois, where does an LLC reside for the purposes of the venue statute 735 LCS 5-2-103E with regard to an action against an insurer? That is a question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District decides Highland Management Group LLC versus the Pillar Corp. The plaintiff, an LLC that operates video gaming operations and bars in 33 locations around Illinois with its re- registered agent in Champaign County, but whose manager lives in Madison County, sued its insurance broker and insurer in Madison County. It is unclear exactly for what was being sued, but that doesn't really matter for purposes of this case. None of the insured locations are in Madison County and a closest is 150 miles away. The defendants moved to transfer venue and the circuit court denied the motion. The relevant statute, uh, the OCS statute states, actions against any insurance company incorporated under the law of this state or doing business in this state may also be brought in any county in which the plaintiff or one of the plaintiffs may reside. On appeal, the plaintiff contends that because its manager resides in Madison County and has an office and an employee there where he does some business of the insured, that it is an appropriate venue uh, for purposes of this lawsuit. The defendants contend that under Tiberta, the incident, incidental location of an office should not, not determine venue. Pat, with that background, why don't you tell us about oral argument in this case? So this case is, it's an insurance coverage case, as Dan said. So a very particular uh provision of the Illinois venue statute applies. Now, let's be clear. We're talking about venue, statutory venue, not forum non-convenience. This has nothing to do with convenience. 
Right. This has to do with where a case may be filed statutorily. And typically it's a place where the transaction occurred or where the defendant resides. But there's this exception for insurance companies. If you sue an insurance company, anywhere the plaintiff lives or resides is where you can sue them. So now we're Dan mentioned at the tail end there the Taberta case. So there's two cases that really talk about kind of this issue. They right. talk about it on a different section of the venue statute, but they bear on it. But this is really, as the justices said at the end of the oral argument, a corporation's question or an unincorporated unincorporated association question as opposed to a civil procedure question. Right. Because let me emphasize the statute again. May be brought in any county in which the plaintiff or one of the plaintiffs may reside. So this is an LLC. The LLC is Highland Management. Now, Highland, Illinois is in Madison County. The plaintiff, if you go to the Secretary of State's website, which I did, it's on Lou Street in Highland, Illinois. The registered agent is in Champaign. So they could have sued in Champaign. They could have, and they're arguing they can also sue in Madison, even though nothing with regards yeah, to this there. business other than this guy happened, this manager lives there. So let's make an analogy to federal court. So in federal court, on diversity, you look at who all the managers are of the LLC to find out where it resides in the same way as you would a partnership, uh, an unincorporated association. So an LLC is different from a corporation. Corporation is in two places, the place where it's incorporated and the place of its principal place of business. An LLC, for the purposes of diversity, is in all of the places where its members or managers reside. So does that also apply in the context of venue under this particular venue, under this particular Illinois statute for an LLC? It's never been decided before. I'm going to pat myself on the back. I raised this issue a couple of years ago in a, in a couple of LinkedIn posts related to a case called Braun, where they cite the... Uh, this Loyola uh, Law School, uh, Loyola Chicago Law School um, uh, law, law, review article. Uh, law, law review article. They quoted, I quoted it in my in my in my post, and actually raised the issue. Where is it? How is it possible that Illinois has never litigated? No lawyer in Illinois has ever litigated this issue. So the Braun case, their venue was proper in Cook County, despite no physical presence being in Cook County and only doing a minuscule amount of business there, the court held that they looked at the transaction and because this was a product liability case and a fair amount of this mesh was sold in Cook County, therefore there was there was venue there. I don't think that has any, any uh, basis in the venue statute, but that's the case that they found. That's what they found in Braun. Likewise, uh, uh, or, or contrary to that in Taberta, and the reason why this arose during the pandemic, Taberta... It's an Ohio accident and an Ohio and a foreign corporation with its principal place of business in Randolph County, Illinois. But they had a salesman who lived and worked out of his house in Cook County. So they sued in Cook County. And the Illinois Supreme Court said, no, nah. the guy does 20 hours a week in Cook in his house in Cook County. That's not an office for the purposes of the venue statute. They don't pay for the, the house. They don't give them office supplies. They don't pay for the internet. None of that. They just pay him a commission or a salary based on work he does. He happens to do it at his house. And the justices 
are, you know, talked about, you know, I work in my house. In fact, some of them may have been at their house at the time of the oral argument um, and said, you know, is this where the state of Illinois, uh, you know, d- does the business of, of uh, the fifth district? No, but it does it in my chambers that they've given me in, you know, one of them had their chambers in Troy. I have no familiarity with where that is, but Troy, Illinois, and another one had it in a different place. And they have their main courthouse in, Ma- in Mount Vernon. Uh, which I believe is in Jefferson County. Um, so obviously, you know, the 5th District's in Jefferson County, and it's in the other places where they have their official chambers paid for by the state, but they're all working at home a fair amount of the time now, uh, or at least part of the time, and maybe taking argument there. Are they Is now the state of Illinois located at their house? Right. No, that that would be absurd. So the exactly. question is, what is this office doing with an employee, to be sure, and this... They also had a drop box. It was kind of comical. They had a drop box for rent to be paid. Someone's going to drive 150 miles to drop off rent. Isn't that why we have one of the few reasons why we have mail? Uh, isn't that what the USPS is for? Uh, so he does this work there. Does that make them subject there? One other thing, because we kind of do know what this case is about, because one of the defendants is society insurance. And if right. you've listened to this show over the last several several months, you know what this case is about. It's a pandemic case. It has to be. Uh, uh, so the lawyer who represented society and all the other cases we've talked about in society also represented in this case, it, it has to be what this case is about. It, it's merits, but not what this appeal is about, which is send this case to Champaign County, get it out of the fifth district. That's what they want to do. They want to get it out of Madison County. Uh, we'll see. It's a very, very interesting question of where is an LLC located and can it be located in a place simply because he happens to have an office there. Dan, what are your thoughts? I, I think you covered it, Pat. I think, you know, if this court and, and, and if I got it. Well, I should have. I took long enough. Well, yeah. And the Illinois <laughs> Supreme Court, if, if, if they were to if they were to find that that is in fact the case, think about law firms and, and again, practitioners. You bring work home, I bring work home. Again, does that extend it to everywhere becomes an office and, and, uh, um, well, well, that's, it's, it's a bit of a different question. And because in this statute, it's where the plaintiff resides. Right. And so we're talking about LLC and we're talking about this very specific language, uh, for this one type of entity. Now it's important to note that the address on the policies champagne, all of the, all of the locations uh, descri- is described as insured are outside of Madison County. One of the justices, I went through them all, and not a single one of them are in Madison County. You didn't insure this office he happens to have there. How could he possibly resign? You know, doesn't this really defeat the point of the statute, which is to subject a insurance company to be sued where it wherever it insured property? I mean, I guess that makes sense. But where, you know, so it's a little different than the office question. But, but they tied it all up, though, with the right. office question by saying that's where the office is at. Right. And that was my point, that, uh, as much as anything here. Um, the, the only other thing I think that uh, uh, many listeners might not know is that uh, insurance companies in Illinois do not file with the Secretary of State. So it's a completely Illinois Department of Insurance regulatory process for licensure. And so uh, one of one of the reasons we may have separate venue statutes, just because, again, they, they are not uh, your typical, you can't go to the Cyber uh, Drive, Illinois, and find registered agent for 
Acme Insurance Company or anything like that. So no, you cannot. Yeah. If you want to serve an out-of-state insurance company who's admitted in Illinois, you serve the second. You serve the Department of Insurance. Department of insurance, right? And that's, that's a you. that's a requirement of of registration with the state, right? Even even in-state ones, typically you have to appoint the Illinois director as for service, just because the the rules. Just as someone that sues insurance companies a fair amount, and all state and State Farm in particular, I serve them at their headquarters. Yeah. Um, but nearly every other insurance company is that's located out of state. I serve them at the you serve them at the, the department. department of insurance, which became a bit difficult during the pandemic because you couldn't get access. Right. You, it took forever to serve some of the out of state insurance companies because neither their office in Chicago nor their office in Springfield were available to serve which was kind of a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Usually it's easy to serve an insurance company, not so during the pandemic. Um, so with that, we'll take our first break and come back and we will discuss Lucanti versus Milos. back for segment two of episode 94 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're back for our second case, Lucanti versus Milos. Does the following language in a retainer agreement grant a plaintiff's attorney the authority to settle a matter without consultation with his client? Quote, giving and granting unto said attorney full power and authority to do and perform all and every act and thing whatsoever, including executing drafts and releases requisite necessary to be done in and about the claim as fully to all intents and purposes as might or could be done if personally present at the doing thereof with full power of substitution, revocation, ratify and confirming that said attorney shall lawfully to do or cause be done by virtue thereof. Oh my God, is that terribly written? Um, that, that the last part is me. Uh, that is one of the arguments that's made by counsel for the defendants in Lucanti versus Milos argued this past week before the Illinois Appellate Court First District. The plaintiff sued for a severed finger, ooh, uh, and a settlement was reached with defense counsel for a $19,000 cash offer from one defendant, $4,000 from another defendant, and an unsecured promise to pay $1,000 a month after the execution of the release. The plaintiff would not sign the release, contending that he did not agree to it and that the amount was insufficient in any event. The defendants moved to enforce the settlement, and the trial court granted the motion. There was no hearing. The plaintiff appealed. In support of their position that the defendant, in support of their position, the defendant contended that no, that not only was their express preauthorization permitted under Rules 1.2 and 1.4 of the Rules of Professional Conduct to settle the matter. But also there was a meeting where authorization was specifically granted by the client to settle the matter for any amount over $25,000. The plaintiff, with new counsel on appeal, shocking, uh, contended that there was never a meeting where he authorized the settlement as described. In other words, this, this second basis, this meeting is like a matter of dispute. Former counsel testified that he did not rely on the language of the retainer agreement that I read at the beginning for his authority and never would have settled a case without consultation with his client. Among the, issues, among the issues are standard of review and propriety of defense counsel using the retainer agreement to enforce the settlement. Dan, tell us about this oral argument. Sure, Pat. And, uh, first of all, as you mentioned, that, that's some uh, poor writing. Um, and, and it came out uh, during the 
uh, oral arguments. There was questions about, you mentioned the language of releases, and there was question about whether or not that did in fact compass settlements. Justice McBride seemed skeptical. She said, well, you can have releases of certain claims or things. A um, couple, couple things to set the table as well, um, to, to your introduction. Uh, the plaintiff... Um, there's a lot here, so go there, ahead. There, there, there's tons. Uh, the plaintiff w was uh, primarily spoke Polish. Uh, he did have an interpreter at certain meetings. Um, he, he seemed to understand certain things, and when questioned, his new plaintiff's counsel, the response was that the settlement agreement uh, was, in fact, read to him. And as you said, he the, the, there was a Well, meeting. the retainer agreement was. The retainer agreement. Right. And the settlement language was uh, uh, allegedly, I think, from my notes. But in any event, the retainer agreement was read to him. Uh, he may or may have not heard the settlement agreement. Um, there was a dispute. Uh, the the appellee was insistent that uh, he was, in fact, at this meeting uh, on rebuttal. Uh, plaintiff's counsel was asked whether or not he was, in fact, at this meeting and his response was unequivocally no, he was not at, at this meeting that's alleged. Um, you, you mentioned the settlement amount, and again, I, I don't know if this was in workers' comp at the, at the base level uh, uh, or how his finger got severed. Well, yeah, good point. But, yeah. uh, you know, just, just from, from, from afar, 25000 or 29000 or however many $1,000 payments per month was going to be paid. Uh, that does seem I low. gather... I, I gather that there was a coverage issue. It, it sounds that, like that, a, that, 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 that yeah. had, there had to have been a coverage issue, and these people were these people being the defendants were of limited means yep. to be able to pay more than that, and that all state was using. That's what I gather. I mean, that's that, speculation. That, me that's too. What I think is going on. Me too. But but again, it's in any event. I, I would think even under the charts for workers' comp, if this were a workers' comp claim, that that this may or may not be you know depending on what work he did and all kinds of other stuff. But sure, in any event. Sure. As, as uh, when the appellant stood up, uh, first of all, in the introductions, Justice Gordon was presiding here, and uh, the appellant was asked how much time he wanted to reserve for rebuttal. He said, "Well, whatever time I have remaining up to up to that." And Justice Gordon pretty summarily said, no, "I'll give you two minutes for rebuttal." Um, uh, as mentioned, the uh, uh, th this was what I would call a hot bench. At one yeah. point, uh, uh, appellant was asked a question, and uh, Je Justice Gordon didn't like his response. He said, my question is a yes or no answer. Uh, the, um, uh, as you mentioned, a uh, lot, lot of things about what the standard of review is here. A um, lot, lot of questions about, again, uh, that language that you read. Uh, Model Rules of Professional Conduct 1.2 and 1.4 were discussed, uh, but there's real uh, uh, questions here, and I'm sure, Pat, you do it. I do it all the time. If, if we're in adversarial relationships, even if I understand what, what my client has, I typically go back to the client just to say, hey, this is what is, is on the table. Um, is this still good, right? And uh, we, we had a situation like that a week or so ago. My one of my associates and I are working on a on a thing to try to uh, resolve a matter, and you know the client came back and said, you know, if that's the best you can do, sure. But but it was the number that she had been told. But you know, this is uh, uh, 
the, the thing here that I think, um, again, is a lesson, and sometimes we teach lessons here, is that communications with clients, you know, things should be in writing. They should be fully understood and transparent, uh, not to get in, into these situations. Um, and uh, a, a lesson here, um, again, the plaintiff's attorney, you know, the original plaintiff's attorney um, had claimed that he had this meeting, uh, that there was, in fact, uh, authority, like you said in your introduction, uh, if it was $25,000 or over, he was authorized to engage in settlement. And so... Why well, just engage in settlement, resolve the matter? Resolve, resolve the matter. And again, he pointed uh, heavily to this. Um, well, he uh, only pointed to the meeting. He didn't look, he didn't rely right. on the, he didn't rely on the language of the engagement letter. That just came from yeah. defense counsel. Yeah. And, and that's, that, that was discussed here as well on rebuttal. Uh, the, the new plaintiff's lawyer said, you know, here's a case where defense counsel is trying to enforce a settlement, right? That, uh, you know, the, the plaintiff's attorney himself said, I would never rely just on the engagement letter. I would always communicate and give authority and all those other things. And so, uh, that was, was part of, part of the oral arguments, um, Going, going back though again to uh, like I said it was was a was a hot bench uh, uh, Justice Gordon um, kept kept you know asking questions and, and as I said at one point uh, he asked a question if you settle uh, the settlement went through is, is there still an, there was still another defendant in this case so procedurally that was another issue that, that took place here. And Justice Gordon, and it was a, it was somebody that was added. It sounds like after the statute of limitations, and, and the uh, they uh, asked the, whether there was a good faith finding. Right. I don't understand what it has not, to do with anything. I don't either. It has I nothing to do with the enforcement. A good faith finding in Illinois has nothing to do with whether there was actually good faith in the settling of the case. The question is whether it's sufficient to trigger a set off under the under the Joint Tort Feasors Contribution Act. It has nothing to do with the issues in this case. I did not understand that reference at all, and that's no. the re- and, and that's probably why it wasn't brought up because it has nothing to do with the case. Right, right. And then you know, for the appellee, you know, uh, at one point, Justice Gordon said, "With all due respect, uh, would would you accept a settlement agreement? You know, uh, in accordance with the retainer, and and really push back on the appellee in terms of you know that whole uh, again uh, the questions of whether he had the authority to settle and all these things, and so." Well, one, well, he went so far as after he read it, he asked him if it if it gave the authority that he said it had, and right. when he said it did, he said, "Shame on you!" Right? And shame on you! That doesn't say that at all. I mean, he was just fed up, uh, Justice Gordon was. Oh, he was with with the uh, yeah. uh, appellee's counsel. Yeah, um, he did. He said, "Shame on you!" Um, How dare yeah. you argue that? Yeah. He says. And he used he used the the phrase that you, we we've talked about in this show. I think that you know you, uh, advocates should never use with all due respect. Uh, because you know, it typically it. means there is no, there is no respect. And I've done that before. We've all probably done it just in the heat of the moment. You're on it with all due respect. Oops, <laughs> you know, nope. You take that. Get back. ready. Get ready to disc you. So interesting case. Um, I, I I don't know if you have anything to add on this. I case. do, yeah. and I want to yeah. pick up. Yeah, you know, because after Justice Gordon, you know, just said it doesn't say that. Shame on you for arguing that. And how dare you do that? You're an <laughs> officer of the court. I mean. I, th- these were his words. I am they not were. paraphrasing. They were. That's just what he said. They're in my so notes. Then Justin, yeah. So then Justice Ellis picks up, and he kind of goes through the language. And Justice Ellis says, hold it down. Counsel, is the word settlement in this language? 
know. Is where are you getting that he can settle it, settle the case without getting specific authorities? Says, well, it says release. Yeah, but release <laughs> isn't settle. Right. Settle is settle. Release settle is, is, settle. is document. <laughs> and again, so, that, that that engagement letter, if this is just one paragraph, whoa. I mean, yeah. it's, it's be hard to understand. That's not English. No. Nah. <laughs> there, there are English words. I agree. There are English there. words, but that is not English. Nope. It's just thrown together. <laughs> exactly. I don't know what that means. I, 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 I hope, I probably, probably doesn't, I hope my engagement letters don't look like this. I'm going to have to go back and look at them and make sure they don't because I, I, I don't know what that means. And I'm not sure what authority I would be granted by this, by this language. I will say, and I posted this on LinkedIn, I, at least some folks thought it said what Appellee's counsel thought it said. And uh, others were, you know, eh, maybe it does and maybe it doesn't, but I wouldn't rely on it in any event. I think that's probably the safer course and certainly the course that original plaintiff's counsel took. Because I had this meeting and then the plaintiff says, no, I, that meeting never took place. I mean, that brings us to the standard of review issue is right. I don't know how you decide that on the paper. The, the, the circuit either. court decided this on paper where you have plaintiff's counsel saying I had the meeting, I got authority, and the plaintiff saying, no, I didn't. No, you didn't. You never it's had like the authority. Issue, issue of fact that has to be resolved, right? I, mean, I, I think it has. that has to be resolved. But at the end of the day, isn't that, that isn't really the question. The question is whether, I, I, what I didn't hear come up was, well, the lawyer had the apparent authority. Right. So if there was a breach, it's, that's, that's, for another, that's for another lawsuit. Right. That's for the legal malpractice case. Right. That's not for the Settlement whether the, the, the settlement agreement should be enforced. When a lawyer when a lawyer says to another lawyer, I have the authority to settle the case for this amount, what other apparent agency could you possibly need other than this is the guy's lawyer? I can't even talk to the guy. Right. I, who else? What else am I supposed to rely on? If that is an apparent authority, I don't know what is. Um yeah, if you I, don't, I concede he I may mean, not have express authority, but he plainly has apparent authority. And and if that's not the case, then it'll be almost impossible for anybody to take the word of a client of an attorney, right. In, yep, in negotiation exactly. for settlement, you'd have to have some affidavit or something in writing from the, the clients. And that's, that is nonsense. I mean, it's just, it, yeah, that, that isn't how, that isn't how things should, how things should work. So, well, uh, with that, we'll take our next break and come back with the two retaliatory discharge cases. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Back for segment three of episode 94 of the Podium and Panel podcast and covering two retaliatory discharge cases. Two different species of whistleblower retaliatory discharge claims were argued last week, one before the Illinois Appellate Court, 1st District, and one before the Seventh Circuit. In Harvey versus CTA, a jury found in favor of the plaintiff on a claim that she was terminated because she complained about a Napa filter to be used on buses that was not the preferred type of the manufacturer and which may have voided the warranty that the CTA had. She claimed whistleblower status under the National Transit System Security Act, but the CTA contended that the act does not apply as it only relates to security 
and the elements of the common law tort of retaliatory discharge in Illinois are not met because there was there is not a specific standard, but merely a general concern for public safety expressed by the plaintiff that was not even pled. The plaintiff also contended the use of the Napa filter would cost millions of dollars, uh, but the CTA contended she had no direct evidence of that beyond her own speculation. As Pat will talk about soon, uh, Justice Hyman was asking about some of the millions of dollars. Uh, in the end, the CTA contended that a manufacturer's recommendation should not form public policy of a disfavored tort, the application of which derogates the general rule of at-will employment. And, and again, Pat will talk about how uh, the CTA Council argued that if this was the case, it would really expand uh, the exception for retaliatory discharge and swallow the rule. And Jennifer Lam Quang Vin versus Springs Window Fashions LLC, the Seventh Circuit will consider the grant of summary judgment in favor of an employer on a claim that the plaintiff was terminated because of her handling of tariffs imposed on certain Chinese products in 2017 in violation of the False Claims Act retaliatory discharge provision. Relying on Burlington Northern versus White, 548 U.S. 53 from 2006, the plaintiff contended that she has a claim for a pre-termination hostile work environment claim, but the defendant contended that the FCA retaliatory discharge language does not include terms and conditions of employment language, and therefore no claim for pre-termination conduct can lie. As to the reason for the termination, counsel for the plaintiff urged that a question of fact existed for a jury to decide that precluded summary judgment because, for example, a performance improvement plan was imposed but never followed by the employee before she was terminated. Pat, with that extensive background, why don't you tell us about oral arguments in these two cases? So let's start with the Harvey versus CTA case. And in that case, there was this, as Dan mentioned, the, the CTA was trying to regularize its procurement process. And so it engaged with Napa, as in the auto parts supplier, right. which also apparently has a contract with the city of Chicago to provide parts for its vehicles as a way to prevent, it seemed that there had been some corruption uh, and some, you know, or at least some uh, untoward activity by, by certain uh, procurement managers in the South shops that were procured, that were overseen by uh, the plaintiff. And so they, they entered into this contract uh, with Napa to procure parts. And among those things was this filter. Now it was unclear, at least to me, whether this was an air filter or an oil filter, doesn't really matter. Doesn't it's matter. a filter. It was not of the preferred variety of the Cummins diesel company who makes the engines that these, these uh, engines run on. Uh, and they said, you know, if you do this, then you may void the warranty and that may cost millions of dollars. And the plaintiff who, herself apparently described herself as an electrical person, not an engine person, said, you know, this could seize up the engines and this could cause danger to the employees and cost millions of dollars if we lose our warranty and damage to the engines and so forth. The, the uh, tort, the, this was a tort claim. It's a common law tort claim of retaliatory discharge. It was right. tried to a jury. Uh, the plaintiff won. Uh, the tort is disfavored. The Illinois Supreme Court has said that it's disfavored. This case called Turner was relied upon extensively by the CTA to argue, you know, simply because you have a general concern for, in that case, patient safety for not having at bedside charting into the electronic medical record doesn't mean that uh, you have a, this doesn't mean that you have, the you get whistleblower status. Um, and 
They argued, as Dan said, that this the National Transit System Security Act doesn't apply, only applies to security, as the name would suggest, and not to the simple payment of federal dollars. It doesn't seem Judge Hyman, Justice Hyman was buying any of that. No. Uh, he's like, this is a, you know, even if she she's not concerned about public safety, it still deals with uh, money that's being spent, that's being wasted. This is a problem. You guys need to get your act together, yada, yada. Okay. Uh, the it's a really um, the ultimate argument that the CTA is making is it can't be that some manufacturer's recommendation, not even they're saying you may void the warrant, right. that that can possibly form and undermine the strong at will employment um, preference in Illinois. Illinois has a reputation of, of being a very plaintiff friendly jurisdiction. But in certain regards, it is very defendant and employer friendly. This is one of those places where it's very defendant and employer friendly, being a a, a radical at will employment state. Um, and, and that's an, it, it's so it's it's gonna be very interesting to see how they do that. Uh, Ju- Justice Hyman and perhaps others were entirely prepared to say, "Oh no, the Turner case is enti- is 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 completely distinguishable. That case has nothing to do with this case." Uh, counsel for the CTA pushed back hard. We'll see uh, how how effective that is. Counsel or Justice Walker asked, a, you know, from the CTA's perspective, a very helpful question about what the standard is supposed to be, because now they've got if they're going to distinguish ter- Turner, they've got to say, well, what's the what's the differentiation? What's the standard? How are they right. supposed? Because the reason why you need a standard is because you're supposed to know, you know, if I do this, will I get sued? For retaliatory discharge and Justice Hyman's post, are you telling me they need a standard for every part in every engine? There's, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of parts in these things. Every single part's going to need a standard. That can't be the law. I, I take his point, but there's got to be something more than get this part approved because they wanted to get this part into the engines so they could start seeing the benefits of this contract with Napa. And she wasn't getting it done and she got fired. That's That's essentially how this happened. Um, Dan, anything else to add on the Harvey case before we move on to the Springs Window Fashions LLC case? No, but you know, uh, I, I kind of think of this case as uh, almost like the Menards case that we covered way back in terms of a policy. That these are recommended manufacturer usage. Again, I don't see the public policy issue here that would would. Uh, uh, be protected, you know, again, like you said, it's too broad. I mean, if, if manufacturers recommend something and that's policy, then and it doesn't relate to safety even here, or, or I'm not sure what the, again, it was hard to, to really get a good answer from, uh, from, from counsel on what exactly the public policy being protected is. Well, it was the money, but the question is, was that, but why, what well, she's not qualified even by her own testimony right. to make such a, to make such an assessment. And, right. But then the question is, how far does the plaintiff have to go to prove that it would have voided the warranty? Were the warrant? Did they put these things in, and were the warranties voided? I, I imagine if that had happened, we would have heard about it. The fact that you know either the either the filters ended up not being used, or the or the war, or if they were used, the warranty wasn't voided. In which case, what are we doing here? Right. And even, mean, if if the, even, cat- even if the warranty was voided again, is that a public policy issue, or is that? I mean, it's money, but is that really? What what retaliatory discharges? And there was only a five year, 
and there's only a five-year warranty on these buses in any event. These things right. are in service for for a Decades. decade and a half or two. I mean, these buses are yeah. intended to the, the CTA has a whole new fleet of buses to be they sure. They do. They do. Uh, you know, primarily funded by you good people outside of uh, Chicago. Thank you very much. Uh, that Dan and I thank you as residents of Chicago uh, for buying <laughs> us a whole bunch of new buses. Uh, but the, the, you know, these buses are intended to be in service for two decades, three decades. Uh, the buses they replaced certainly were. Um, so five-year warranty, really? I mean, it's, right. I'm, not, I'm not getting moved too much on that. No. Uh, maybe I should be, but I'm not. Uh, so interesting case, an important one. They're going to have to set a standard on so we understand. And, and I'll say, just to give people a time scale here, this happened in 2013. This is not a, this is something we would have known about by now. Right. Um, there, it wasn't like this happened like during the pandemic and we don't, there's not enough time has run. This happened nearly a decade ago. Um, so that brings us to this, the spring windows case. Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, or do you detect a bit of politics? running through the relationship between the plaintiff and her employer on the enforcement bit. of this tariff. A little bit. Yeah. So the tariff is a 2017 <laughs> tariff that was imposed by the Trump administration against the importation of Chinese goods. The plaintiff really wanted to impose this tariff. This is where the politics come in. And her <laughs> employer's like, screw that. We need the stuff in. Our customers are taking the short end of the stick we need the stuff. Stop bringing up this tariff. And she kept bringing it up, kept bringing it up, kept right. bringing it up. And ultimately, there's a lawyer they engage. I don't know if this was an in-house lawyer or an outside counsel. Wasn't the lawyer says, no, you're not subject to the tariff. Don't pay the tariff. You're wrong. And apparently, this woman was a, was a customs officer at the company. Her job was to facilitate the importation of goods. And you can see for the name of this company, Springs Window Fashions, these are the kinds of textiles and parts that you would be getting from China or from Asia generally, they're not really made in the United States anymore. They may be finally oh. assembled here, but the individual material, you know, the, the individual parts are probably made in Asia, whether it's China or other countries, and then and then imported to the United States. So, you know, imposing a tariff or, or collecting a tariff on products that maybe your competitors aren't collecting on, and you're thereby increasing your costs unnecessarily, that's a big problem. So one of the questions in this case, and I thought counsel for the appellee did an excellent job of explaining her position. I don't know if her position's right or not, right or not. I know nothing about employment law. I don't pretend to know anything about employment law, but she said this pre-termination terms and conditions, you know, this comes up a lot in the sexual harassment context where a per, a, a, the terms and conditions of your employment don't involve being harassed. And if they, and if there is a pervasive hostile work environment, then you are constructive, essentially constructively discharged, which can you can get recovery for pre-termination employment actions like creating a hostile work environment. Same thing can happen in the uh, if a racial uh, hostile work environment. Most often, right. it's in the sexual harassment uh, right. um, context. Uh, and he, she's like, no, no, the FCA, the False Claims Act, which is what she was claiming whistleblower status under. And Title VII have different language in their retaliatory discharge situations. And the language of terms and conditions of employment doesn't appear in the FCA. Therefore, it doesn't apply. She's not making a Title VII claim. She's making a whistleblower claim under the False Claims Act. This doesn't apply. Um, and counsel stress, you know, we really should get a jury here. 
this gets to the standard of review here on a motion for summary judgment. Judge Sykes is like, we decide cases like this on summary judgment all the time. It's a question of how close it is. And we'll right. decide whether this could go to a jury or not. She was like, they, she gave that the back of the hand. She's like, ah, I know. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm not impressed right. by you <laughs> saying your lady should get a jury. Why? We decide these cases all the time like this. She didn't say shame on you, though. Like, no, like she, did not. no did. she did not. <laughs> she did not. I, I don't think what he said was was seen as that inappropriate. I think he was just making an argument. She's like, I don't buy that argument. I, right. I, I'm not. Justice no. Gordon was a bit more going. He didn't even think the language said right. what the lawyer was saying. It said it, and you know, I, I don't know if I agree with him or not, but he be sure was sure <laughs> as to what it said. So this will also be an interesting case to see how far. Uh, they're willing to uh, to go and make this distinction because it didn't seem there was a case directly on point anywhere because no, no. I'm sure we would have heard about it. So this is a statutory construction case, at, at least in part. Um, Dan, anything else to add on the uh, on the spring spring windows fashions case? No, I think I think we've covered it. Okay, very good. Then let's move on to the business interruption COVID cases. Dan, why don't you tell us about the developments for the week? Sure, and they're mostly at the state level. Um, I, th I think some circuit courts continue to decide, but we've kind of talked about that, that, uh, that they're still, that the win streak for insurers is intact. Uh, last week, we discussed Massachusetts and the highest court's uh, decision on COVID-19 in, in, in that jurisdiction. Uh, the Iowa State Supreme Court recently uh, weighed in and, like Massachusetts, uh, affirmed the motion to dismiss few other state developments. Uh, Maryland last week, uh, its highest court agreed a certified question to clarify insurance property and property loss or damage definitions that are undefined in the policy and to, uh, uh, to add clarity to what those terms mean. Um, but again, unless something unusual occurs, don't expect uh, the certified question to be answered uh, differently than Massachusetts and Iowa have been addressing these issues. We also have a, a pending cases before another uh, several state high courts, including Vermont, Wisconsin, Washington, and Ohio. We've talked about those oral arguments, but no decisions have been rendered yet uh, to our knowledge. Um, and in the meantime, Virginia and California, uh, both Supreme Courts, they denied review of COVID-19 coverage dismissals. And so I think that covers business interruption, Pat. I think it does. And it's interesting that those two states, big states, especially California, yeah. have, I mean, they haven't declined to even take up the issue. Uh, yeah. And that doesn't mean that they won't take it up later. But, but right now, if they were going to take it up, why not take it up now and at least give a hint as to where you have to give guidance? But the fact yeah. they're letting the, because the appellate courts have all ruled in favor of the insurers, that gives a strong signal that the uh, the law in those states is favorable, favorable to insurers. Right. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if that remains the case. But at least for now, those states would fall into the same category as Massachusetts and Iowa as being four states now, essentially, that have held in favor of the, the state high courts, have at least indicated, uh, in favor of the insurers. It's not over, but it's, uh, and they're, it's they're, moving they're, along. They're not just big states, but California is a major insurance state. And, you know, California in the pollution for environment was Montrose and other cases. So... Uh, like you said, it seems like that's where they're headed. And Virginia is also a big state for non, uh, non-admitted insurers, um, especially in the commercial space. So, again, a big state for a lot of these policies that were probably issued. And, and so 
Um, those yeah, Massachusetts and Iowa are much smaller players. Right. But Virginia and California are much larger for both right. population as well as for the uh, uh, for the commercial reasons that Dan described. Yeah. Um, so, interesting. So that brings us to our predictions sure to go wrong for the week. Um, why don't we go through? Uh, uh, I guess our first case is Highland Management versus Pillar. What do you think on this, Pat? <laughs> Reversed? I don't know. I really don't know. Very hard to say. I think yeah. reversed. Yeah. Uh, I think the facts here are too attenuated. I think so, too. I th- it's I a de novo it's review. That's important to keep in mind. It's a de novo it review. It's a question of law. Um, but it's a question of whether it's a question of law applied to the facts. There was that discussion as well. I, I think it's a question of law. I think they're going to decide it de novo. I, I hesitate. I very weak. <laughs> yeah. Uh, comment of our, our uh, prediction of reversal. The, the algorithm may, 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 if we lose, this only be three quarters. <laughs> three quarters of a loss. Okay. Yeah. All right, very, good. Yeah, very good. What about Lucani? Uh, oh, that's getting reversed. That's getting reversed. Yeah. That's getting sure. reversed. I think Ju- Justice Ellis and Justice Gordon were both very clear. I think so. Uh, less clear with Justice McBride, although she did ask some questions that were favorable to the appellant as well. Justices Gordon and Ellis seem to be very squarely in the favor of the of the appellant. That so I think that's getting reversed. And I I uh, I had uh, I was at a gala on Thursday and and uh, sat at the same table with Justice McBride, Pat, and uh, I mentioned to her the podcast. She wasn't familiar with it, but. Uh, I told her we had covered some Justice Gordon cases, and so here's and I, I at that time did not know, you know, or I hadn't really listened to the argument yet, knowing that that she was going to be on one of these cases this week. So interesting. Maybe we got a new listener. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, and then the third, the third and fourth cases, I should say, are Harvey versus CTA, and uh, I'm just going to say Jennifer versus versus Spring Spring Windows. Uh, I. I don't think they should, but I think the CTA is going to lose. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's going to get a first. You think it's going to get reversed? Justice Hyman is plainly not voting in right. favor of the CTA. Uh, yeah. Justice Walker a little harder to tell. Justice Pachinski, I think, who was the third, yeah. or no, Justice Coglin rather. Coglin. I think it was 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 on the panel a little harder to tell. I, I think um, you're right. Although again, I, it it sure seems to me, and that if, like we were talking about the public policy, I just don't really see it, but. In any event, I, I Justice Hyman wasn't C- wasn't buying any of it. Justice Hyman, bad poker player. Um, or he's not even trying to play poker. No, uh, I, th- I don't think he's not trying to play poker. But we may see. We may if the CTA does lose. In fact, even if they win, um, you will see a petition for leave to appeal. Um, this is this is not the last time. Now, whether the Supreme Court takes it or not, that's a different question. Right. But this is not the last time this court this the court will have a chance to re- review this case. Uh, spring windows is being affirmed. I think so. Yeah. All right. Which brings us to our one prediction sure to go wrong for the week. Uh, our records now are 133 and a half, 21 and a half and seven for Dan. I am 32 and a half, 22 and a half and seven. They, we got, we predicted the new Kirk versus Leslie, which actually came out last week, but it didn't make the cut to get into the show. It came out Friday or something, right? Yeah. It came in, it came in late. I didn't have a chance to post on it. The algorithm didn't get fired up to to, to calculate. Uh, you know, by ad- maths are not our strength. We're we're lawyers, not doctors. That's right. So so not strong on the math. Um, so this is the tornado case with the fellows outside who get struck by the tree. 
the court said no duty to uh, inspect the tree. Um, it's very specific to its facts. It is. There are it certainly is. cases where trees falling on people, whether in a tornado or not, has been held that the landowner has a duty. But under these facts, there was no duty. Dan, anything to add on the Newkirk case? No, I think that's it. Okay. So why don't you tell us about the rule of the week, which came up during the podcast uh, episode 92 with John Fitzgerald. Dan, take it away. And we both learned something on this one. Sure, so. sure. And and, and uh, he, he made mention of it as we were talking. Uh, John said uh, he loves the show because we talk about rules, and he, he gave us one. And it was Illinois Supreme Court Rule 318. And one of the questions we asked him in the special episode was about uh, the appellee, in this case. Um, the county. The county cross-appealed on, on something that they had not provided notice for. And so Rule 318 provides, it's the general rules governing all appeals from the appellate court to the Supreme Court. And 318A says relief to other parties and all appeals by whatever method from the appellate court to the Supreme Court, any appellee, respondent, or co-party may seek and obtain any relief warranted by the record on appeal without having filed a separate petition for leave to appeal or notice of cross-appeal or separate appeal. And so neither Pat or I were aware of that. And and so you learn something on this show. Even Pat and I learn something every week. So typically, in the appellate court level, if you want to appeal an order, and you weren't the original, you weren't, you didn't initially appeal the order. You have to file a cross appeal. And there's a time within which to do that. You can imagine the mess that would be created if this weren't the rule. You would either have to file a petition for leave to appeal, even if you won, or you'd have a separate petition for leave to appeal process that you'd have to go through after petition had been granted on the main one. And then they do it all over and it would just delay things. So there's given that it has to be in the record, as it says, it, it, it doesn't prejudice anyone. So, But you can think about the mess that would happen. I wonder if it's the same rule in the United States Supreme Court or other courts where they, they have discretionary appeals. If, if you just raise whatever you got in your, in your response brief. Uh, I would I'll, think I'll so. Appellee. I, I would think so because of the same procedural nightmare. Right. Yep. People would either have to file unnecessary petitions for leave to appeal, or they'd have, you know, rounds of briefing on petitions for leave to appeal, which would be a nightmare. Yep. So with that, uh, I think that's all we've got for this week. I think that's it. I think three shows for one week is enough. More than enough. <laughs> More yeah. than enough. All right. Have a great week, everybody. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship 
Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.